Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Hope everybody's having a wonderful week, and that wherever you are, if you're listening to this as it comes out in relative real time that your spring is off to a good start. We have had snow here in New England in the last few days, but that is something that's happening less and less frequently as we move into late April and early May, which means that the fish will respond. As I walk by the little ponds in the neighborhood, I see fish starting to pop and splash and do all that sort of stuff. There's a lot more wildlife going on and I was down south last week, and it's just and everything's in full bloom. So it's just a really exciting time of the year for anglers. And again, I know that, that there's a lot of opportunities to fish all the way through the winter, but there is something special about uh, April, May, June, uh, no matter where you live in the United States. I'm going to talk about a number of different things this week. The very first thing I want to talk about is something that I've had a couple of really interesting interactions with over the last, I would say, month or so. Uh, one was a personal interaction with a good friend of mine who's not an angler, and then there's been a couple of online conversations I've had with people that I know uh, through Casting Across, people who have reached out to ask questions, and that is how to pick the right line weight. Now, there's so many resources on this, and this is not what this entire podcast is going to be about. That, that would probably be a great thing to talk about, but it would almost be like reading off a spreadsheet. And so maybe I'll save uh, more of this for another day. But today I wanted to just kind of talk about one thing that I like to think about when I pick out a line weight for a rod. Now, this is really more applicable and appropriate if you're only going to have one fly rod. You know, I and this is pretty consistent and normal across fly fishing. I've got a dozen, you know, that I can think of on the top of my head that are downstairs, and multiple, you know, five weights, multiple three weights, multiple six weights. But if you're only gonna have one rod because you're starting out or you're buying something for somebody as a gift, and you're trying to figure out what should I get, what should I use, or even in the case of you have a bunch of rods downstairs or in your garage or wherever, 
which one should I take with me on a longer trip? Uh, you don't want to lug four rods with you on your back for you know a day in the woods or something like that. So which one should I buy? Which one should I use? And it is, I would say, a misrepresentation of how fly rods work to say that you're not going to feel fish or enjoy smaller fish if you use a heavier rod. So here's a great example. Uh, in my office uh, at work, I have some decorative fly rods. There's some old bamboo and there's some older fiberglass. And I think out of the seven that are there, four or five of them are seven weights. They're not necessarily labeled as such. They have different labeling conventions, especially back uh, for the ones that are from the 50s and 60s, but they translate to being seven weights. However, they were built for trout fishing. And when you pick them up, they feel heavy, but they feel heavy because it's older technology and it's it's a, it's a little bit outdated and so it's a little clunkier. But the line that they're intending to throw and the fish that they're intended to target are normal trout and probably, you know, some medium-sized warm water fish and panfish and things like that. So it is a, again, a misrepresentation of how fly rods work and the purpose of them to think, you know what, this thing feels really heavy. I'm not going to enjoy catching that 12-inch trout if I use this rod. Now, of course, if you're anticipating throwing really, really teeny tiny flies, then you know that you're only going to be catching 12-inch fish. You're fishing up in that mountain stream where a 12-incher is a trophy, so most of your fish are going to be eight, weight, eight inches or something like that. Then, yeah, go light, but if you are in that same situation and you know there are a couple of deep pools and you're really going to feel tempted to fish a bigger fly, a heavier fly, a bigger or heavier fly that requires a long cast, then instead of fishing that two weight, maybe bring the three or the four. And that's kind of my my advice. And I know this is kind of random and, and out there, but again, I've had three or four conversations in the last few weeks about this. So a uh, great example, a friend who thinks that his family who's buying this fly rod for is going to be fishing for trout in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And you know what? When I go up there, I'm almost always bringing a one or a two weight because I know places that I fish, I'm going to be fishing small dries and every once in a while, small unweighted streamers. And I feel like the two weights that I fish have enough of a backbone to, to make that work, but I'm primarily going to be fishing small dry flies. And so I don't feel like I'm being handicapped by bringing that two weight. However, I have no clue how this other person's going to fish. So I'm not going to say, oh yeah, yeah, bring the two-way. It's so much fun. You can fish this ultralight fishing and even the six-inch brookies are going to give you a fight. The six-inch brookies are going to give you a fight on a contemporary, modern, well-designed four-weight or even five-weight. What that four and five-weight allows you to do, especially if you are a new angler, is to cast better. I honestly believe it's easier to cast a five-weight than it is to cast a two-weight because you have a lot more going on. You can feel that line because it has more weight on it as you cast. It's also a much more substantial and forgiving rod and line to cast. So that's part of it. The other part that I think is essential to realize is that who knows where this person's going to go? Are they going to want to practice fishing on their local warm water pond? And in that case, they need to be able to throw a small bluegill popper, which you can do with a two weight, but can you do easily? And is that something that you necessarily want somebody who's learning how to cast and fish to do? No. So jump up to that four weight, jump up to that five weight. The same thing, you know, a lot of times when I'm fishing from the shore here for stripers, an eight weight is totally fine, but my latest purchase is a nine weight that is much bulkier, 
um, much heavier duty reel. But what it's going to allow me to do is throw those heavier lines, which I probably need to be throwing heavier lines, more sinking lines than I, than I usually do. And so although it feels like overkill in hand, I know that when I hook up with a 20-inch striper, it's going to not matter. And I'm not going to say, ugh, this is nothing. This feels like I'm not fighting a fish at all. So just a little bit of thought about uh, line selection or, and rod selection, rod weight selection if you are in doubt, go a little bit heavier. And as long as that rod's not a broomstick, you're going to be totally fine. So again, misunderstanding, misnomer, bad assumption that a rod weight that goes one or two up from kind of maybe what, what you want is going to ruin your fishing experience. If anything, is going to make your fishing experience better because you're going to be able to cast further, maybe cast more accurately, and also be able to cast a wider variety of flies. So I know that in saying that and talking about that for six minutes, I glossed over so many facets and so many components of it. But if this can be helpful for you as you are shopping for a rod, either for yourself or for a gift, or like I said, if, if you're trying to debate on this big canoe trip you're taking, you can only take one rod, uh, which one you're, you're going to take as you as you hop in the, the canoe and with all of your stuff for a long weekend, don't feel bad about taking that rod that is two weights heavier. I'll be honest with you. When I go mountain trout stream fishing out west, um, I will bring a five or six weight, even though that is way overkill. Because there's times where I found myself in situations that I'm very, very thankful I could throw that big weighted streamer, or I could throw that incredibly heavy wind resistant hopper into the wind uh, because I had that heavier rod. And I never thought, oh man, this you know 12 inch cutthroat doesn't doesn't feel like it would if I was on a three weight. At the end of the day, that's not what, what, what my priority is. So anyway, there, that's a couple words on rod weight selection. Again, maybe talk about that more in the future. If you have questions about that, again, am I the authority? No, I'm not the authority, but I've had plenty of experience doing this, um, both in, in sales as well as for my own uh, personal uh, interaction with my rods and a lot of rods out on the market. Second thing I want to talk about today is ticks. Ticks, ticks, ticks. I have had Lyme disease. It is not fun. Um, I got it not from fishing. I assume it could have been from fishing, but I was down for the count for a week in a way that I have never been before. So I do not like it. And I don't know why, but it feels like the last few years, the ticks have just been out of control. You, some people inevitably will say something about the deer populations or the mouse populations or climate change or whatever. But all I know is that it just seems like it's gotten much worse. And I am very, very aware of it because I've got me, I've got my wife, and then I have four kids. Thankfully, they're all incredibly pale and they have very, very light hair. So they're pretty easy to spot the, the ticks when they're on them. But we're in the woods, whether we're fishing or hiking or just goofing around outside in the neighborhood, we're in the woods. And so we're in constant contact with these ticks. And they are awful. They're no fun. You do not want to get Lyme disease. So what do you do? You don't say, I'm staying out of the woods. You don't say, I'm staying off the water. You use the right stuff, and the right stuff is not DEET. Let me say that again for everybody. It is not DEET. Why not? You say, well, DEET works for me. DEET, DEET is, is incredibly you know, helpful for me. You know what? If you are out and about in your walks and in the woods in your jeans and your T-shirt, sure, load up on DEET. However, DEET is a solvent, and DEET does dissolve everything from plastic to nylon, to spandex, and and even other hard plastics like you might find on electronics. So think about your gear. And I've, I've probably talked about this before on the website, but this is the time of the year where this is worth reminding people of. 
think about your gear. What is the coating on your fancy expensive sunglasses made out of? What about your fly line? How about components of your rod and your reel? What about your really nice Gore-Tex jacket? What about your waders? All of those things will be significantly compromised if they get a quality dose of DEET on them. Or if they get a little bit of DEET on it and it doesn't get taken off or, or cleaned off in, in a reasonable amount of time. DEET is bad news for plastics. And so much of what we use today, whether it's right or wrong, is has plastic components in them. Uh, so I just stay away from this stuff. And honestly, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, but if it can do that to plastic, I don't want it on my skin or on my kid's skin. So is there any chemical that's necessarily going to be healthy or good for you? Well, not not really, but there's things that are going to be less dangerous and less damaging. So is DEET approved for human use? Of course. It, it's in 95% of the bug sprays in the market. It's still, I, I, I don't want to use it on my person, and I don't want to use it on my gear at all. I've seen it happen. I'll get to some of the good stuff here in a second, but I've seen it happen when I, when I worked at uh, Orvis. This was, boy, 20 years ago. A guy came in beginning of the summer to go to Alaska, two spools of really, really nice line that he could fish for, for salmon or for trout, uh, two pairs of waders. He wanted two pairs of waders so that he could he could have the flexibility, I guess, and a bunch of other gear. Wonderful sale to be able to do that. He comes back irate that this gear was falling apart, and it had completely been like uh, disintegrated the line it was it was as if the, the coating was it was crumbling off in my hands and the waders had these big wet spots that they looked like they were saturated with water and the reason was we quickly figured out he had doused himself and then consequently his gear with deet and it really did a number on all of this gear so i've seen it firsthand and i've seen jackets that you know that have had deet applied to them because it does they 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 don't repel the water anymore if anything they whatever is left in that fabric blend it absorbs water so just keep it off of your stuff it's just not worth it so what should you use there's two ingredients that uh that i think are, are worth looking into one is permethrin and another one is picardurin picardurin i don't know if i'm saying that right but i prefer Honestly, Repel has a clothing and gear insect repellent, and it is clothing and gear saved. That's one that uh, that I've used before. And then Repel has another one that it doesn't have either of those active ingredients in it, the permethrin or the picardrin, called um, plant-based lemon eucalyptus. This stuff, it's it stinks, but it doesn't stink like bug spray. And you can get it at Target, you can get it on Amazon. I think last year we bought a bunch of them on Amazon so we could have one in every backpack, one in either car. And now I know that your being attractive to insects depends on where you are, your body chemistry, all those sorts of things. But for this stuff, I spray it all over my shoes and ankles and I spray it all over my hat and I never find ticks on me when I'm using this. Now, does that mean that it is going to keep, keep you completely protected if you just put it on your head and on your shoes? No, but I like to wear long sleeves and I like to wear long pants, even in the summertime, because I don't like putting on bug spray and I don't like putting on sunscreen. Uh, but I will use this stuff more uh, liberally if I'm going to be in the deep woods. But usually if I'm just hiking with the kids or I'm on the trail until I'm on the water, then I will put this Repel Lemon Eucalyptus on my shoes and on my hat, and it does keep stuff 
from crawling up my legs and it keeps stuff from buzzing around my head. It's great stuff. I use it on all of my kids, uh, regardless of what we're doing and where we're going. So again, that is Repel Lemon Eucalyptus. But we, we have had great experience in my family with the permethrin uh, Repel, which is the clothing and gear stuff. That is not as uh, easy to find as uh, it used to be. And then the Picardarin uh, as well has been has been helpful that we've used. So just remember that if if anything of this episode is helpful, maybe this will help preserve that awesome $75 fly line you just bought or your $300 waders. All right. So talked about line selection or rod selection and ticks. The third thing I want to talk about before we get into the website stuff for this week, which definitely stick around. If for whatever reason you don't stick around for that, this is a good week to stick around for that. I'm going to talk about a couple of uh, important things that I think are, are worth listening to. But what I want to talk about briefly is Earth Day. So this is being recorded on the 22nd of April. And I remember Earth Day from when I was in elementary school. It was a huge deal. I remember every year we had to create posters and they were put all over the school back when I was living in Illinois. I remember one year, it's probably the year that Free Willy came out. I remember drawing an orca and uh, it jumping over the planet um, to symbolize who knows what. Um, saving the whales probably, which, you know, the whales seem to be in good shape these days. Anyway, um, the other thing was I remember a bunch of kids, all you know, dresses and ethnicities, holding hands around the world uh, with a big recycling logo. I remember that was that was a theme one year. But what's really interesting this Earth Day is uh, I feel like last Earth Day uh, the the priority was hey let's stay alive, and I'm here to say that that's good, that's very good. I think what we saw over the pandemic is a reshifting of priorities back to what matters most. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that I think that we need to take care of our planet, not because it's just a good idea, but because I think that it is our responsibility, our obligation that we were created to be stewards of the natural world because it is good. And so I am all about conservation, obviously. But what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is, you know what, there might be some things that are more important than really drilling down and trying to find minutia that may or may not be helping the environment. So great example, guess what, as soon as grocery stores open back up, we were using plastic bags again. They'd been outlawed in my state and we were using them again. I feel like we've gone back, we've reverted to a lot of waste and a lot of single-use stuff, which I'm not advocating. In fact, I think it's it's not good. However, it shows that, that culture has realized we want to protect the earth, but we want to protect our lives. And I think that's a good thing. So I am not advocating anything regarding the way that COVID has been handled. I have opinions on that and plenty of them, as we, as we all do and should. And I'm not advocating anything necessarily about the way that we pursue environmental conservation, although I have opinions on that, as we all should. But I guess the point I want to make is, is we have gotten to a place where I think our priorities are in line, where we realize that we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to take care of the planet. It's kind of a... Uh, you know, put the mask on yourself on the airplane before you put it on the person next to you. I really do think that that's the right set of priorities. It's not either or. And I think that is the false dichotomy that is too often 
bandied about in conservation circles, even in fly fishing, and certainly in the political sphere. Everyone has to villainize black hat over here, white hat over here, and, and treat it like it's an either-or thing. It's okay for people to have priorities 1A, 1B, and you to have maybe the, those things inversed and, and them be slightly different, but them still be a very, very high priority. And once we realize that, we don't assume that everybody who doesn't agree with us is out to kill the planet or kill all the people, then we're going to make some real progress. So next time you see something flash across social media or pop up on your, your news feed or a conversation you have on fly tying night when it's back in person, remember that. Hopefully that can be helpful to you. Actually, one more thing before I get to the this week on Casting Across on the website. Uh, a couple of weeks from now, I'll be recording another Fly Fishing Accusations podcast where I interact with emails, social media comments, and other questions I get from you, the listener. And I have a backlog of them, but as I always say, if something comes up that's really good or is going to take up you know seven minutes of my 20-minute uh, question and answer segment, then I will absolutely go after it. So feel free to send me an email or uh, chirp me on social media, uh, Matthew at castingacross.com. You can find me on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter and uh, all over the place. So definitely reach out if you have something that you wanted me to comment on or something that you wanted to kind of engage with me about happy to hear that and to see that. So this week on castingacross.com, the first article that came out was called Those Days. This was a kind of a two-tiered article. The first one was me just reminiscing quickly about the way that fishing used to be when I started fishing. I write about that uh, here and here and there. It, it's just one of those things that's almost intimidating to write about because it's just so fond. I think for, for all of us, we, we have those fond feelings for those developmental years. But just realizing that it is not something to mourn but it is something to celebrate because it stays with us and it goes with us. It shapes, informs, and directs how we fish and how we live now. And I draw a couple of those parallels. So check that out. It's called Those Days. There's a header image of a really bad uh, scanned-in picture that came from a disposable camera with a really skinny little brick trout and uh, a skinny me with uh, some pretty sweet fly fishing gear on. Wednesday's article is called A Favorite Flybox Reimagined. So if you've listened to the podcast, I've done a few different podcasts on gear selection, specifically fly boxes, because I think it's one of those basic things where if you have your gear organized, you're going to use it better, and you're going to be more apt to be comfortable and, and carry it with you more easily. And so fly boxes matter a lot. This is a new set of fly boxes. There's two of them from Mana Fly Fishing. It's a small company out of Rhode Island, and they have updated one of my favorite styles of fly box, which is a floating foam fly box. Floating foam fly box. Say that four times fast. And they come in two styles. There's one with slits, and there's one that is just foam. It's a high-density foam. It is going to float. It uses magnets to close, so you can use it with one hand. It is an upgrade to kind of previous foam fly boxes because it does have those slits, which I love because it does give you that flexibility of you're able to just slide in the shank of the hook on a larger fly and probably actually down to like maybe sizes like 12. You can slide in very, very easily depending on the, 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 the size of the, the bend of the fly. But they're 
great boxes. They're ergonomic. They're pretty cool colors. They're like a swirly, blended-looking, dipped color. There's a green and white and a black and blue. But they come in at about 20 or 25 bucks, depending on which one you get. Which, what I say in the article, and I definitely go check the article out because you get to see pictures of these boxes, and I kind of break down some of the reasons I like them. Uh, you can get a any old fly box for 10 or 15 bucks, or you can get the perfect fly box for you for 20 or 25 bucks. I mean, fly boxes easily go up to $50 these days. So these are a steal. They work for really everything but the tiniest flies and the largest flies. Uh, but for the bulk of your trout, bass, and saltwater flies, these boxes from Man are going to be great and they're going to float. They're water resistant because they have a little molded foam lip. Uh, when they're closed. So if you drop them or they get rained on, as long as they're not submerged for a long period of time, which is really hard to submerge a foam fly blocks for a long period of time, then then it's going to keep your flies dry. And they're not waterproof because honestly, I don't like waterproof fly boxes. I don't want the water that's in to stay in. I want it to breathe a little bit. I'd rather open up my fly box in the day and leave it on the dashboard so it dries out rather than staying sealed up depending on how much moisture is in there. So check those out. And my recommendation this week on the podcast is those fly boxes from Man of Fly Fishing. So I just talked through them, talked about them. I have always used floating foam fly boxes. A lot of them have been those kind of woven nylon outsides, and this is just an update of it. So it doesn't have that that nylon on the outside, but it's a heavier duty foam. So I think it probably get the same sort of, of durability. Where if it, even if it gets nicked or cut or snagged on something, it's not going to fall apart. And even if the hinge were to be compromised slightly, it's not going to just tear uh, like a like a perforated piece of paper. It's going to give you some more longevity. So definitely check those out. I'll put a link to Mana Fly Fishing and the two fly boxes on the show notes for this podcast's page on Casting Across. And of course, you can go back and read the article I mentioned, which was called A Favorite Fly Box Reimagined. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.